So welcome again. We continue in our worship in our kingdom series. And today, let's have God's word open us up to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 34. And then we will make a quick jump to Ephesians chapter 3, 7 to 12. So let's have God's word open us up, beginning at John chapter 13, verse 34. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's word. Please follow along either in your Bibles or up on the screen. We begin in John 13, verse 34. Now this is the word of the Lord. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom... We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Our vision at ELMC is to see the kingdom of God come and his will be done in our homes, communities, and the world. Now, last week, we began seeing what the kingdom advancement looks like in our communities, and we started with the theme, the subject of justice. We saw that as justice, merciful justice, is given, administered, and shared, the kingdom of God advances. And today, I'd like to explore how the kingdom comes through unity among the body of Christ. You know, in Revelation 5, we're actually given a picture of heaven. And in heaven, we find every nation, tribe, and tongue, they are gathered before the throne of God, and they are worshiping together in unison. They are worshiping with unity, singing one song, the song of redemption. You see, we find that when we get to heaven, the cultural, linguistic, and ethnic differences that we have are not eliminated, but they are acknowledged. Yet at the same time, despite all of these differences, we find that everyone, the people of God, are unified under the banner of Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches us that when we, the people of God, with many, many differences, when we come together, when we're brought together by the power of the gospel, and when we maintain this unity, when we fight for this unity, what we are doing is we are advancing the kingdom here on earth. When we maintain this unity that Christ has given to us, we are disarming the principalities of this world. We are singing the victory cry over Satan, 
that Christ has given to us. When we maintain the unity, that is when the kingdom of God advances in our communities. John 3.13, as we've read, said this, verses 34 to 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, with these verses, I just want to look at three things shortly. The three things will be this. First, the object of our love. Second, the degree of our love. And third, the power of our love, the effect of our love. So first, let's get right into it, the object of our love. We find here in today's passage, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, I want you to love God. He doesn't say, I want you to love yourself. No, he says the unexpected and the difficult command, love one another. You know, love God, that is the expected religious answer, but Jesus doesn't say that. And love yourself, the popular cultural answer, Jesus doesn't say that, but he says, love one another. Do you know why Jesus here says he doesn't command us to love God? Well, I think he says um, he emphasizes love for one another because anyone, anyone can claim to love God. Right? If I were to ask you, do you love God, right, most people would say, yeah, I love God. And to say that you love God, when you think about it, if I were to ask you, so what does that mean, you know, it's so difficult to quantify You know, loving God is an extremely abstract concept. It's difficult to quantify or even how does it manifest itself. There's no way to question it or even contest it or verify if you love God. I recall in college, uh, we had, there was a group of brothers, uh, you know, we did everything together. You know, we hung out together, we, we went away together, we played sports together. And within this group, there was this one younger brother who we felt was going wayward. He had claimed that he was going to, you know, go into the pastorate. Uh, He was excited for the Lord. He was going to give his life for the kingdom, but we felt that he was going wayward, and we saw this in the way he treated other people. He was abrasive. He was arrogant. He was prideful. Uh, Every time we would play uh, physical sports, he would get into verbal and sometimes physical altercations. And so we invited him over for dinner one time to have the difficult conversation. Say, hey, brother, there's something wrong. You're prideful. You're not loving. You're not gentle. Do you know how he responded? He responded, I love God. Don't you dare question that. And I thought there was no way for us to respond. What do you mean? See, loving God is so abstract, but not only is it abstract, it can also be deceptive. Exhibit A, the Pharisees. Everyone thought that they loved God, and they claimed to have loved God. But you know what they really loved? They loved being viewed as people who loved God. They loved being considered as examples of people who loved God. And they loved it when people saw their outward physical display of love for God. But did they actually love God? See, Jesus wasn't born yesterday. 
He knows that when we say, I love God, that can be misused and abused. And so, what does he say? He emphasizes something real, something tangible, something that's outwardly identifiable. He says, I want you to love one another. This is what John says elsewhere uh, in one of his letters, 1 John 4, 7 to 8. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I'm going to stop here for now. He says this. First, he says, if you are born of God, you have the capability You have the capacity, you have the ability to love one another. Now, I want to make this clear because it's definitely not the other way around. If you have been born of God, if you have been loved by God, then you have the ability to love others. But it can't be the other way around. In other words, we can't love people to be loved by God. No, the Bible makes clear God loved us first. And because of that love, we can then go on to love others. But, John makes clear, if you have received and experienced the love of God, the natural response or the natural organic fruit is to love one another. In fact, for John, God's love is so real, so powerful, so effective that it will produce love for others. I know sometimes, you know, when we get all ambitious, we start projects thinking that our hard work will yield some sort of results. Those of you who have gotten into gardening, you sow seeds expecting fruit, or you you put your hands to work for something expecting certain results, and sometimes you don't get it. Well, John makes the point God's love is not like that. God's love is not a coin toss where you're unsure of the response. No, for John, God's love will always produce a response, and that response is love for one another. See, John's confidence is not in our ability to respond or not in our ability to love, but John's confidence is in the effect of God's love for us. When one experiences the love of God, he or she will have the ability, have the capability to love one another. See, John even goes as far as to say, this is how we know, right? This is how we know if one has been loved by God. What does he say? If we look uh, back, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, Jesus, he says, listen, this is how you know, this is how you can verify if you have been loved by God, is if you have love for one another. John's like, hey, don't talk about loving a God that you can't see if you can't love a brother who is right next to you, a sister who is right next to you. You know, we often speak of love languages. Do you know what God's love language is? God's love language is love for his people. So first, that's the object. God commands us to love one another. If you look throughout the Bible, whenever you find the command to love God, it's always followed by love one another because to love God means that you love other people. Second, that's the object. Second, the degree. Very shortly, 
Not only does Jesus talk here about the object of whom we ought to love, but he talks about the degree. He says this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You know, this phrase, just as, in the Greek, is a very common word used by John throughout his gospel and his letters, and it's the word kathos in Greek. We find it used throughout, in, in, uh, throughout the gospel. I have a few examples here. John 10, 15, uh, Jesus says this, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Or John 13, 15, do just as I have done to you. John 17, 14, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. And finally, 17, 21, he says, they may be one. He's praying, may they be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Again, when Jesus talks about the degree of love, how we ought to love one another, he doesn't talk in abstract ways. He doesn't leave, in, leave it open to definition or leave it up open to interpretation. He gives the very example. He says, love one another. So what does that mean? What should that look like? Well, Jesus says this, love like I have loved you. You know, there's a difference between parents who tell their kids to study. Study, study, study. We've seen those parents before. Maybe we are those parents. There's a difference between parents who tell their kids, study, and those who actually teach their kids how to study. There are parents who tell their kids, read a book, read a book, read a book. And there are parents who provide books to read for their kids and read alongside them. See, when Jesus commands us to love one another, he doesn't just leave it up for, for you and I to decide how and what, to what extent, and what that looks like. No, he actually shows it with his example. He says, love like I have loved you. When he washes his disciples' feet, he says this, exactly as I am doing, as I am serving you, you ought to do for one another. Just as, just as, is the word that he uses. The degree and the standard and the extent of love for one another. It's Jesus himself. It's the gospel itself. Finally, third, and this is where I want to spend the most of our time today, the power. What is the power of this love? John says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, by this, right, people will know that you are my disciples if you love them. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, people will know you are my disciples if you love me. He doesn't say that. But he says, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, love for one another is not just for loving one another. isn't just for unity in the body. But loving one another is the great evangelistic tool that we have. When we love one another, we display to the world that Jesus is Lord. When we love one another, we show that there is power in his cross and resurrection. And indeed, all who come to faith in him are born again, not just with a new identity, but they are born again into a new community. You know, have you ever thought about church, what we do here as believers? Where else in this world do you consistently meet and gather with people who are different from you? Where else in this world do you meet and gather with people who 
share, who, who don't share similar business interests, who have different hobbies, different ages, backgrounds, ethnicities? Where else in the world do you gather and meet with people who are extremely different from you? Where else in, in this world do you meet with people whom outside the gospel you have no affinity for or connection with? And if I can be frank, where else in the world do you meet with people whom outside the gospel you would actually dislike and not be friends with? I mean, think about what we do here, right? Every Sunday, we sing together, right? We open and we sing together. And singing together is not just warm-up. Well, why do we sing together? We sing together as a sign of unity that this is what we believe in. I mean, where else in the world do you sing with other people? Maybe at a sporting event, you sing the national anthem. I mean, even that is contested today. Where else do you sing? Maybe at karaoke? But even when you sing at karaoke, it's only one person singing, right? Or a few people singing and the rest just listening. Where else do we sing all together the same song? Where else do we confess out loud, creed together? Right? After we sing a song, after we sing praise songs, what do we do? We confess our confession with the Apostles' Creed. I mean, think about it. Where, throughout the week, do you actually say out loud a creed with other people? In a world that prizes individualities, who prizes distinctiveness, where else do you actually say the same words together in unison? You know, it just hit me today as we, go, as we went through the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. When you say you believe in the Christian church, what is it that you're saying you believe in? You're saying ultimately that you believe in each other, that you believe in the work that God is doing in each other. We believe in each other and the unity that we have through the Holy Spirit. Outside of the Sunday sermon, where else do we sit together for half an hour, sometimes more, listening to the same words? I doubt that there's a single TV show, a single podcast, a single newspaper article that we all listen to, watch, and read every week. Right? More recently, the author Chuck Klosterman, he wrote uh, about the fragmentation of society that we now face. He talks about how more and more with the advent of, digi- of digital and streaming, the, the, the plethora of options that we have, the multitude of options, the endless libraries of content that we have, that as, there's, as it's expanding out more and more, there's less and less of a cultural language, a common cultural language. He talks about gone are the days when the entire world would listen to Michael Jackson and watch a single television show together, Seinfeld. I mean, here's a good social experience, right? I mean, please don't be shy. I'll ask a few questions, right? Raise your hands. Who here watched, you know, the most highly rated uh, TV show of this year, Squid Games? You raise your hands. I mean, yeah. All right, now you have something to talk about during fellowship. Okay, great. Uh, you just go up and say, hey, Squid Games, huh? Okay, who here watched Yellowstone, which is the second highest rated show? <laughs> okay, maybe one, okay. One, one per- Yellowstone, yes, yes. Okay, who here watched White Lotus? Okay, Timmy, okay, exactly. All right, who here watched Mayor of Easton? Okay, now, now we know uh, each other's uh, 
I guess, characteristics and personalities. Um, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to ask who here watched Bridgerton, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the uh, top-rated books, Atomistic Habits. I mean, how many of us here collectively read that together? American Mar- Marxism. Who here read the Holy Bible last year? You see, you think about it, we don't listen, read, watch the same thing. Every week, we're given different voices, we receive different content, but on Sunday, for half an hour, we all sit under the Word of God, and we listen together to the same Word at the same time, and that's important, at the same time. Why? Because we confess that this is the Word that the Lord has for us. On Sunday, we gather before the table of God and we eat and drink. We gather for meals as a community group. We break bread as the people of God. You know, Christians were known since the very beginning, they were known for their agape fests, which is called a love fest. They gathered so much and they broke bread so often. They called each other brothers and sisters, and so, so much to the fact that society thought that Christians were insensual, that they were loving their brothers and sisters in a twisted way. The world thought that Christians were glutens, or gluttons, not glutens, excuse me. They were <laughs> that all they did was gather to eat. All they did was gather to eat. Why are they having all of these feasts together? Why? Because innate in their DNA to who they were and their identity was the fact that they were one. It was a symbol that everyone was equal. They were made one in Christ. That they all ate and drank of the same thing. They all ate and drank of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, as we've read, is I think one of the most important passages in the Bible. And I know I say this often, but it is. Ephesians 3 is one of the most important passages. If we look at it, Paul in Ephesians 3 talks about a mystery that's revealed In verses 3 to 5, he says this, listen, there's a mystery that's now being revealed, a mystery that was not known to the sons of men, mystery that was hidden, mystery that was not revealed, and he says, now it's been revealed. Paul is saying, listen, we are at the end of the story, and the great mystery is now being revealed. Even angels, they're holding their breath, waiting in anticipation. What is the ending of the story? How is it going to unfold? What is the big reveal? It's that point in that movie, in that story, that tipping point where everything is revealed and it starts to make sense. Paul says this in Ephesians 3, 6. You know what the mystery is? The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul says this. The great mystery is that the power of the gospel unites everyone. Jew, Gentile, male, female, master, slave, young, old, introvert, extrovert, Enneagram 3, Enneagram 9, in the gospel, we are all united. That is the mystery that's revealed. You know, I love the way that Paul puts it. He says, listen, this mystery is now being revealed to the hosts in heaven. This mystery is now being revealed to the angels. Even they did not know what the gospel was going to do, the power of the gospel to unite. 
I don't know if ever there was a show, um, a musical, opera, or movie that you've watched where that great reveal happened and it started to unfold everything. Everything started to make sense. And what happens? You just, at the end, you just want to get up and you just want to start clapping. Bravo, bravo. What an amazing, amazing, unexpected ending. This is what's going on in Ephesians 3, where Paul is saying, listen, this great story of redemption and salvation, we're at the turning point. This is the great reveal, and it's that everyone in Jesus is equal. And you can imagine the angels, the multitudes, the myriads of myriads of angels getting up and applauding and singing, worthy is the Lamb. Verses 9 to 10, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying the church is the instrument, the means through which this unity is shown. When we as brothers and sisters in Christ actually unite, when we maintain the unity that we have in the gospel, through that, the world sees the power, the power of the cross. Uh, In Germany in the 18th century, uh, there was a nobleman by the name of Nicholas von Zissendorf. When Count Nicholas was 22, he discovered that there were hundreds of persecuted Christians in Moravia and Bohemia, a country that was south of them, or regions that were south of where he was at. He he found out that there were hundreds of these Christians looking to flee their country. And so Zissendorf, he invites all of them to live with him on this piece of land that they own together. And they started building a community. At first, things were really exciting. They were going to live together, and they were going to worship God freely. But after some time had passed, the community began facing conflict, dissension. People began fighting, arguing, bickering, and complaining against one another. I mean, just imagine how much you fought with your siblings growing up. Or just think about how much your children presently fight amongst themselves. Now think about 300 people in this community living together essentially as siblings. They fought over and over and over again. And so as this community was on the verge of breaking up, Zissendorf, he goes to each and every member. He knocks on everyone's door. And he doesn't call for, he doesn't call for compromise. He doesn't call for understanding, but he calls for greater sacrifice. He calls for greater accountability, and he calls for intentional unity. They start to look at the Bible and he says, listen, can we take seriously what Christ has commanded us to do, that is to love one another and lay down our lives for each other? After Zissendorf goes to every single family, the entire community gathers together for worship and communion. August 13, 1727, 300 refugees, they gather at the Lord's table. And there the Lord brought upon great conviction for every single member to lay down their differences, to lay down their disputes, to lay down their difficulties and maintain the unity that they had in Christ. At the Lord's table, the gospel fell fresh. They were reminded that God had invited them all to his table. 
that it was God who had invited them, not on the basis of their merit or their performance or their righteousness, but He had invited them because of His grace and His mercy. And it was a powerful time of repentance and joy. Through this newfound sense of unity, God would go on to do amazing things through that community, a community, a small community that had indelible impact on the Protestant church, even on our church today. Three things I just want to note. First, this community began a 24-hour prayer meeting. They knew that if they did not commit themselves to prayer, community wouldn't last, that this conviction would turn to a distant memory and not a life-changing event. And so they committed two people for every hour in that community to pray. And so they started to pray. You know, that prayer meeting lasted for over 100 years. Second, they started meeting in small groups or accountability groups. They met by age, they met by gender, they met by life stages, and they spoke truth to one another. They encouraged one another, and most importantly, they called out each other's sins, and they repented together. You know, today, John Wesley is often considered to be the father of small groups, but Wesley was actually influenced by this community. This was the first community to meet in small groups. And you know what they basically did? They met outside in the woods, and they called each other out. Like, here, this is the way I think you can love the Lord more. This is the way in which you ought to love your wife more. This is what I observed living with you. You know how difficult that is? To hear that every single time. But that's what they did. The third thing that they did was after a few years, this community felt so compelled. You know what? This is great, but we need to go out. We need to share the good news. And so they began sending missionaries out to West Indies, to Greenland, to Turkey, to South Africa, all throughout the world. When this was first proposed, when this was first proposed, 26 missionaries were commissioned. 26 missionaries. And by 1726, this was about 40 years into this community's life, 226 missionaries were sent out from this community. It was the first Protestant missionaries in the modern era. And the most alarming thing as I read this story was that the average age of this community when, first, when missionaries were first sent out was 30 years old. Sissendorf was 27. When historians describe this community, they often allude to the words of Sissendorf himself. This is how we describe this community. He said this, the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men. In other words, it was heaven on earth. This place was heaven on earth. Through and how? What? Through unity. When they came together as one, when they led aside their differences, the things that made them unique, distinct, the things that caused bickering and fighting and confusion, when they let all those things down and said, you know what? The blood of Christ unites us. And then when they started to live that out, the Lord started to do amazing things to them. Heaven had come to that community. You know, I just want to present to you just um, four things, maybe four practical things uh, as we conclude um, as to how we can maintain this unity that we have through the blood of Christ. The first thing is this. Um, be present with one another. Community assumes presence. If we want to build community, we need to be present. Be present with one another. 
The idea of church, I know that for some, for some of you, the idea of church is to be invisible. I know some of you just want to come in and out, not be recognized, not be known. You don't want to be present in any way. You just want to attend. But that is not what the body of Christ is. Community assumes presence. The second thing, not only be present, but second, be transparent. Be present, but we also need to be transparent. We need to be open. We need to be honest. Now, we always talk about community, or we always talk about accountability here. You know, accountability is predicated on openness. You can't go to your accountant and say, I want you to uh, take account of my finances, but not give him any numbers, right? To be accountable, you need to be open. If we want accountability, it's predicated on being transparent. If you want true accountability, you have to be open and willing to reveal the things inside of you. Third thing, um, be present, be transparent. The third, be receptive. Be open. Be open to hospitality. Be open to loving rebuke. Be open. When, when the Bible talks about, um, you know, loving one another, it, it uses this word uh, receive, to receive one another. We're called to receive each other, to receive one another's presence, to receive one another's words, to receive one another's actions. Receive them. Receive what they have to say. Receive their loving rebuke and their loving encouragement. Fourth and finally, be invested. Be invested in the community. You know, for the past two years, you know, I think we've been so invested in many, many things that are going on. I don't recall a time whenever there was war in this world and so many people were invested. During the Iraq war, I don't recall this many people being invested in the news. Throughout the pandemic, more and more people started becoming invested in financial markets. We've become invested in so many different things, in politics, in news, in world affairs, in finances. We've become invested more and more but the most important thing, being invested in each other's lives, I think we've missed. You know, when we come together as one, when we lay aside our differences, that is when we proclaim to the world that Christ's victory is here to stay. When we come together as one, as we lay aside our differences and we say that the love of God transcends all things, that's when we declare to the powers and the principalities of this world that the cross is the final answer. When we become one, that's how the kingdom of God advances in our lives and throughout the world. And so this day, this morning, I encourage you to be present, be transparent, to be receptive, and to be invested. Would you join me in prayer at this time?